science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, today we're certainly not, not going to put you to sleep, but we will talk about sleep and its interesting chemistry, and we'll also discuss in the second half of the show why you might consider things singing lullabies to babies. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. We try to demystify science and make sense of the nonsense that is out there. As usual, I do have questions for you, and we have one hanging over from last week. What is the link between Kim Kardashian and Bram Stoker? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800, which is also the number to call if you have any kind of questions. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. So I want to know the link between Kim Kardashian and Bram Stoker. All right. I also do want to tell you uh, a story. And the story starts with thunderstorms. Have you ever noticed the sort of the fresh smell that uh, you get in the air after a thunderstorm. So what is going on here? Well, a bolt of lightning flashing through the air can break the bond within the oxygen atoms that make up a molecule of oxygen. So even those of you who don't have very much of a background in chemistry, uh, I think will know that uh, oxygen is uh, diatomic, meaning that a molecule of oxygen is made up of two atoms of oxygen. So anyway, the Electrical discharge from the lightning can break the bond between the oxygen atoms, and uh, the highly reactive uh, oxygen atoms that have been liberated will then combine with a molecule of oxygen, that is O2, to form a molecule of O3, and that is ozone. Back in 1785, Dutch inventor Martinus van Maroom was the first one to note that man-made electricity can also generate the distinctive smell of ozone. He had designed a giant machine to produce static electricity and observed an odor that he called odor of electricity. Some 54 years later, University of Basel chemistry professor Christian Friedrich Schumbein showed that the odor was not that of electricity, but rather of a gas that was produced when oxygen is exposed to an electric discharge. In 1800, Alessandro Volta had invented the battery. And uh, just a year later, Humphrey Davy, one of the greatest scientists ever in England, had shown that when electrodes attached to a battery are immersed in water, a current will flow between them. This results in the decomposition of water and the release of oxygen at the positive electrode and hydrogen at the negative. I'm sure many of you have performed this electrolysis experiment uh, when you were in high school, because it is really a classic one to do. In 1839, this is exactly what Schumbein was experimenting with. He was playing around with the electrolysis of water, and he noted a pungent smell that was produced along with oxygen. For this, he coined the name ozone from the Greek term for smell. 
and he would end up researching this gas for the rest of his career. He wrote over 200 scientific papers on the subject. It wasn't long before German electrical engineer Werner von Siemens designed a machine to generate usable amounts of ozone. The question was, what to use it for? An answer came soon enough. In the 1860s, Louis Pasteur had formulated the germ theory of disease and had unleashed a search for germicides, that is, substances that would destroy these germs, because these would protect people from the germs. Along with many other substances, such as Joseph Lister's phenol, ozone was tried and indeed was found to have antimicrobial activity that proved useful in disinfecting operating rooms. Ozone was also effective in disinfecting water, and by the end of the century, the town of Ochorn in Netherlands had installed the first facility to disinfect water for human consumption, and that was soon followed by a similar facility in Nice, France. Today, ozone is used in water treatment uh, facilities around the world, including ours right here in Montreal. Unsurprisingly, ozone was also tried in the treatment of disease. In 1879, Dr. William Harvey Kellogg, he of cereal fame, mentioned using the gas to treat diphtheria. And Nikola Tesla was a believer. He patented an ozone generator and established a Tesla ozone company that produced ozonated olive oil for sale to naturopaths. Since then, a number of alternative practitioners have embraced ozone and have claimed benefit in virtually every known disease. Ozone does dissolve readily in water and is usually injected as a solution, either directly into the body or into blood that is withdrawn and then introduced back into circulation. In some cases, the gas itself is administered into various body orifices. I'll leave it to your imagination what those orifices are. Medical societies and regulatory agencies around the world maintain that there is no evidence that ozone therapy of any type is evidence-based, and they advise against its use. As one might suspect, claims are now being made about treating COVID-19 with ozone, and this amounts to absolute balderdash. Ozone can, however, be used as a disinfectant, and a number of devices are available that generate ozone by passing a spark through air and then dissolving the ozone that forms in water. It can be used to wipe countertops and will eliminate bacteria, but it is less effective against viruses. Gaseous ozone can be used to eliminate smells based on its property as a potent oxidizing agent. This means that it can steal electrons from other substances such as smelly compounds, and rip them apart. The use of ozone generators to eliminate smells after a fire is common, but this can only be done if people are not around. Inhaling ozone is damaging to the lungs. Indeed, ozone that is produced in a complex set of reactions when hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxides in automobile exhaust are exposed to sunlight is considered to be a serious pollutant. In contrast, the production of ozone in the upper atmosphere by the reaction of oxygen with ultraviolet light is desirable since it protects excessive UV light from reaching the Earth's surface. That gives rise to the saying, 
Ozone is fine when up high, but not when nearby. As with everything else, though, it's a question of dose. Uh, exposure to significant amounts of ozone, of course, can be damaging to the lungs, but the amount that you would sniff after a thunderstorm is really not relevant when it comes to uh, health. The same odor can be noted around waterfalls. This is interesting, the waterfall effect. So what is going on there? <clears throat> well, it turns out that when water droplets shear against each other, they get broken down into smaller droplets, and each one then has an electric charge and a spark can jump in between them. It isn't noticeable uh, to, the, uh, to the naked eye, but it happens. And that spark then generates ozone. So we get this scent of ozone around uh, waterfalls. And some people believe that this is healthy and will actually seek out waterfalls and sit there uh, to inhale the fresh air. Uh, I don't think it does very much, except maybe provide a placebo effect. But the amount of ozone generated in that fashion is not uh, enough to, to worry about. Well, let me get back for a moment here to Christian Schimbein, because he is one of my favorite scientists. Aside from uh, uh, coining the term ozone and essentially being credited with the discovery uh, of the gas, uh, he made many other contributions. He was the first one to design fuel cells, uh, such as the ones that eventually uh, came to be used in, in cars and, and, and in spacecraft. But uh, I originally got enamored with him because of the accidental discovery of gun cotton that is attributed to him. And as the story goes, which I have told many times, is that sometimes the great chemist would take his work home with him. And his work sometimes involved acids, such as nitric and sulfuric acid. And one day, he was working in his kitchen, and he happened to spill these acids on the floor. Luckily for him, Frau Schönbein wasn't around at the time, but uh, Friedrich thought he'd better clean up this mess. So how to clean it up? He reached for the first thing that he could grab, and it happened to be his wife's cotton apron that was hanging on a nail in the kitchen. So he took this cotton apron and he wiped up the mess on the floor. But then he had this wet apron on his hands. What to do with it? He had to dry it. So he hung it up in front of the fireplace to dry. And the next thing he saw was that the apron disappeared in a flash. Now, most people would have said, gee, you know, where do I go to find another apron? But Shimbai recognized that he had made a discovery, an important discovery. It turned out that the apron was made of cotton, which he knew, being a chemist, and he had wiped up the nitric acid and sulfuric acid with it. So there was a chemical reaction between the cellulose in the apron and the acids to form something called cellulose nitrate, which came to be called gun cotton. Why? Because it burst into flame so easily. The nitro groups in the molecule provided the oxygen necessary for combustion. This gave Schumbein an idea, because in those days, battlefields were plagued with smoke, as gunpowder, the original gunpowder made of carbon sulfur and saltpeter, produced a lot of smoke. Everyone was searching for smokeless gunpowder, and here was Schembein 
accidentally having discovered a way to produce a smokeless substance. And he went to work, and pretty soon he developed a way to convert cotton into gun cotton, and that became what we know today as smokeless gunpowder. So there you have this interesting story, the relationship between Friedrich Schumbein, ozone, and gun cotton. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I don't yet have an answer to my question about the link between Kim Kardashian and Bram Stoker. I await that, but I'll give you another question to try to answer. What substance is known as the Dracula hormone? So what substance is known as the Dracula hormone? All right, uh, more questions, of course, uh, about COVID have arisen this week. It's a never-ending story, obviously. And now people start to be worried about what happens if you're fully uh, uh, vaccinated. Can you still contract the disease? Uh, the answer is yes, there have been such cases, but this really should be minimal worry. Let me give you a little bit about the, the numbers. First of all, the numbers about how vaccine protects against an initial infection. And, you know, we've kind of memorized these numbers. Uh, it's uh, around 95% for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, it is somewhat less for uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Those are in the 60-70% uh, range for preventing an infection. But what about the case of people who are fully vaccinated, have had two doses of vaccine, can they still get infected? Well, in the U.S., uh, there are now close to 70 million people who have been uh, vaccinated, and there have been about 5,800 uh, infections among the vaccinated people. This is an extremely, extremely small percentage, uh, meaning it is, it is less than 1%. So if you are fully vaccinated, you have less than 1% chance of uh, acquiring the infection again. But again, you have to remember that we're still dealing here with you know, short-term effects. Uh, and uh, you know, as I uh, constantly remind everyone, we don't know long-term effects until a long-term has passed. So you know, it's a wait and see. But in the short term, certainly the chance of infection after uh, full dose of vaccination, that is very, very uh, small chance. Uh, as you may have heard on the news today, in Israel, they have revoked the recommendation to wear masks uh, outdoors. Schools are now fully back to operation. All the stores, all the restaurants, everything is back to being open, everything normal, but you're still required to wear masks uh, indoors. So obviously the vaccines have been working there and it is the Pfizer vaccine that has been uh, used. Uh, it, it's not surprising that uh, we start to hear some reports of possible side effects because when you have millions and millions of people being uh, vaccinated, stuff, stuff will happen. The uh, most recent one that we hear is, is about a possible link with shingles and that uh, there seems to be a greater incidence of, of shingles, although it's a very, very low percentage, among people who have been uh, vaccinated. 
I always caution everyone to uh, be careful about taking an association and making it into a cause and effect relationship. Uh, there has to be further investigation of this, but you know uh, it may turn out to to uh, to be real because after all, all science starts with you know what we call the aha moment. Someone makes an observation, but then you have to pursue it. So the observation that that uh, a few people have made is that uh, there seems to be an increased incidence of shingles linked to the vaccine. We'll see whether or not uh, this holds true. In any case, of course, no one should ever not get the vaccine because of this theoretical risk of uh, shingles. Something else I think that should be mentioned is that it is important that these vaccines be administered in the proper way. They have to be injected directly into the muscle and uh, it is injected into the deltoid muscle on the upper arm. This is a huge muscle. It's not hard to to find it. So, you know, uh, I, I think anyone can be trained to do this injection. However, there is the possibility that that some may not inject it exactly in the correct way, because if you pinch the arm uh, before injecting, you raise the the tissue, the fatty tissue that is above the muscle. By, by, by squeezing the arm, the, it is the, the fatty tissue above the, the skin that goes in between your, your fingers. And if it is uh, then injected with the vaccine, the vaccine goes into the fatty layer, not into the muscle, in which case it may not be quite as effective. The, the muscle, of course, is infused with blood vessels so that the um, a vaccine goes directly into the bloodstream. And uh, it will eventually migrate out of the fatty tissue as well, but not as uh, effectively. So it's important that those vaccines be given in the, in the proper way. And obviously, it is also critical that the vaccines be prepared in the proper way because they are shipped and then they have to be diluted. And that dilution has to be done in, in the proper way. Again, that's not a difficult thing to do, but you have to do it right. Otherwise, you get the uh, incorrect dose. And of course, one of the uh, benefits with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it only has to be given once. So that, in fact, reduces any kind of uh, injection errors. It reduces any kind of uh, dilution errors. And uh, also the fact is that with the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine, you don't need the ultra cold temperatures as you do with the, with uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Uh, obviously, this past week we heard a lot about this rather unusual type of blood clot that uh, uh, shows up in the veins that drain blood from the uh, from the brain. And uh, if there's a blood clot that forms in these uh, uh, sinus veins, as, as they are called. Uh, that can eventually lead to the uh, leaking out of blood from the veins into the brain. And that, of course, is a hemorrhage, uh, which uh, nobody obviously wants to have because that can lead to all kinds of symptoms, many of which are, are similar to hemorrhagic strokes. Um, this has happened in a very, very, very small number of, of uh, people. They have all been women and uh, they have been uh, young women. The number of cases so far that have been recorded is about six, 
uh, with uh, one fatality. But the reason that there is some concern here is because the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a similar type of, of, of vaccine in that it is also a viral vector vaccine, uh, has also noted this rather unusual kind of uh, blood clot formation. It's unusual uh, because it is associated with a low platelet count. And usually when you have blood clot formation, it's because platelet counts are high. Platelets are uh, instrumental in the formation of, uh, of blood clots. Uh, nevertheless, the um, the decision to make the decision that was made to halt the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, uh, I find to be a very curious decision, because the incidence here is so low. You're talking about six cases out of seven million people who have been injected. That is a, a vanishingly small number, and only one fatality. So the risk to any individual is very, very small. But what about the risk to people who are now not being uh, vaccinated and therefore are at risk of getting COVID? And for sure, COVID has the risk of uh, developing blood clots, just the disease itself. So I'm, I'm a little bit stymied about the decision. Now, I know that, that there have been justifications uh, the suggestion is that, well, yes, so far we only noted six cases, but let's wait about two weeks because it takes about two weeks for these blood clots to show up. So we want to make sure that that there's not a large number of these hiding out there which just haven't been surfaced, be, haven't surfaced because not enough time has passed uh, since the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was administered. We will wait and see on that, but uh, uh, I, I, I think it is a very curious decision that was made, and uh, I, I think that it puts some people at, at risk. I think in this case, the, the benefits of stopping the vaccine uh, are uh, smaller than the risk that it poses. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, my guest today is Jacques Shore, who is a lawyer. And he's an advisor to a number of uh, both Canadian and international companies and also a negotiator for the federal government. But his real claim to fame is that he is the father of my colleague, Emily Shore, who, of course, you all know because she's been on this show many times, who organizes all my office's activities and who is with us on our uh, bi-weekly webcasts. And furthermore, I, I, I guess I was wrong about that because Jock's real fame now is that he's just become a grandfather because Emily gave birth this week to young Zoe. Uh, welcome to the show, Jacques. Thank you so much, Dr. Joe. And what a beautiful introduction. So grateful to you. And All right, uh, let's get to down yes, to... Uh, you, you put it right because, yes, this past week has been quite a remarkable one with a new grandchild. Puts a lot of things into perspective, Dr. Joe. Oh, yeah. Grandchildren are great, especially because when you finish Google and Gagaing them, you can give them back. 
All right. But the reason that, that we're chatting here today is because you have an unusual sideline of writing children's books. You've uh, written a couple, but the most recent one is this uh, little book, uh, beautiful illustrated called Sleep My Baby. And uh, it intrigues me for several reasons, of course, because I talk often on the show about sleep, about how important that is. Uh, we've talked about the hormones, the adenosine, the, the melatonin, cortisol, the substances that are involved in, in, in sleep. And so it is a constant topic of discussion because we know that impaired sleep also leads to impaired health. So anything that makes people sleep better is, 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 is great. But there's certainly a story behind this uh, uh, beautiful little book, Sleep My Baby, which you wrote together with your mother who was a Holocaust survivor. So maybe give us a little bit of a background uh, how this uh, beautiful little book about sleep came about. Thank you. I'd be happy to, Dr. Joe. Um, this lullaby actually was written by my mother, composed for me when I was a child. So my mother was known for many things, uh, aside from her writing, her work in philosophy as an educator, as someone who had, had been very, very much engaged in the literary world as well. Um, when I was born, she actually uh, composed Sleep My Baby, which is a very beautiful lullaby, which in fact also was read by my to my brother, Michel, thanks to my brother, Michel, as well. Um, and then it became very much a, a, a tradition in our family that we could sing the lullaby to our children before sleep. And uh, we then, in turn, um, have this lullaby as a most special gift for all, essentially, members of our family. And when one thinks about those incredibly beautiful moments at bedtime, which I think are sort of the quieter moments in a family, uh, where you want to lull a child to sleep, create that moment of, of comfort and, and restfulness and a serenity. Well, I don't think there's a better way of doing that than, than having uh, read to a child, which I think which is so special about this book, which has now been basically elevated from a, a beautiful melody, which it is as a lullaby, to uh, a book which was actually... Um, published by Simon & Schuster in the last year of my mother's life. When she was 96 years old, my mother said, there's got to be one more project that I can do. Let's do something together. And ultimately, I thought this would be a a very special tribute to my mother and a legacy in her life to actually have Sleep My Baby turned into a a children's board book. And that's what we have. And we're just so happy. It's actually going to be released this week. And there will also be a new version of the melody because I helped my mother actually expand slightly on the lullaby. And so there is an additional verse in there. And uh, Julie Nasralla, who is a wonderful Canadian opera singer, singer will, um, she'll be featured on the new uh, melody version of Sleep My Baby coming out. So it's all about, it really is about those, those precious moments. And God knows we have a world that's fairly chaotic out there. There are many problems. Um, my mother worked very hard through her life. To, I can describe it as, as being a, a bridge builder, uh, something that she had promised that she would do if she survived the war, to build bridges among people. And so with the barricades of hate that we find out there and the prejudice, what better way than use an opportunity before bedtime to start teaching? I mean, sharing with a child the most important things that we can and, and hopefully that does lead to a good sleep, which is certainly very important, and also 
to uh, to a sense of security and serenity. I know that everything that I've heard from Emily about your mother uh, is that she was a remarkable woman. But the story that intrigued me the most was her friendship with the Pope, because mm-hmm. they both came from Poland, right? This is this is the former Pope we're talking about, the, the yes. British Pope, Jean-Paul. And uh, she was friendly with the Pope. And I, I understand that uh, you and her visited the Pope and the Vatican and uh, visited him in his private chamber. Yes, yes. Many times. In fact, I, I had to. I have to say that I really described the relationship between my mother and John Paul II uh, as uh, as really kindred spirits. They were very similar. They had not met uh, before uh, before John Paul II ascended the papacy, but soon after they did, they were introduced to each other as a result of the work that my mother was doing. Um, and it was remarkable. I was at that first meeting. And to see how they so quickly befriended each other with ideas, with thoughts, with views. My mother had, without a doubt, a, a significant influence on the Holy Father. And I, I mean, there's no doubt he had one on my mother as well. And so that, that relationship was a very strong one. And it was very sad when John Paul II had passed away for my mother, for our whole family, because he truly had become a family member. And we were part of the Vatican household um, after his passing to participate in the incredible farewell. It's really a remarkable story because, of course, your, your mother was a Holocaust survivor. So, so obviously, you know, they came from totally different uh, backgrounds, Catholic and Jewish. And yet yeah. there was this friendship that was forged between them. True. My mother was very universal, though, in, in everything that she did. She had, you know, um, worked very, very actively also with the Catholic Church through her uh, working years. And um, John Paul II was also someone that really wanted to strengthen those relationships. Uh, my mother had written the book, Building Bridges, uh, John, Paul, Paul, John Paul II and the Horizon of Life. And in there, she describes quite incredibly the way in which, um, how he grew up, but also how uh, he reached out to the Jewish community. And one of, the, one of the remarkable things was his trip to the synagogue in Rome, which no other pope um, uh, had done previous to that. And, and really through there, I have to say my mother's, my mother's work was very, very much one where Pope enjoyed her, her literature, her poetry, the work that she did. And my mother devoted much of her work also to, to sharing what she had gone through in the Holocaust, but in a way that remembered those that had, that had perished, those who had been mur- not remembering how they died, but how they lived and what lessons we have to learn going forward. Sleep My Baby, I think, is very, very much also one where, in collaborating with my mother, it really was going to be very much a focus between mother and child, because that relationship is just so, so unbelievable, so remarkable, the bond between a mother and child. But there was also my mother's view that we, we don't have that sense necessarily, uh, necessarily a peacefulness, which is so important. Which I think it's remarkable how Jessica Courtney Tickle, who is the illustrator of Sleep My Baby, did so incredibly well. And so sorry that my mother did not get a chance to see this book coming out right now. But I know that she'd be glad because it has so much to do with relationships. And how do you really start relationships, Dr. Joe? I think it begins right there, mother and child. Obviously, father and child, too, for sure. But the mother and child and what comes from that is just so significant. Yeah, I wish I wish uh, I had had this uh, little book when my kids were small, 
because uh, the only one, well, no, I remember reading several books to them, but the one that they really liked, and in fact, even now they still enjoy, was uh, was the hair book. And mm-hmm. uh, it was one of these uh, illustrated uh, books sure. also. And I Beautiful. still remember hair, hair, it's everywhere. Some have a little, some have a lot. Plain hair, striped by polka dot. Curls and braids and beards and lashes. Some people have long mustaches, etc., etc. I still remember <laughs> this, even though I haven't, I haven't said that for about 40 years. That's <laughs> so. so wonderful. Well, that's so wonderful. But really, you know, that's what's so important. The, the books that we remember as children, they stay with us. They really do stay with us forever. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I felt this is such an important, in a sense, generational book that I really believe that it'll be now out there for others to enjoy and to be able to quote like you just did right now. But I think it's some wonderful children's, you know, children's writers and illustrators, how they have really enriched our, our lives. So we Absolutely. wanted, to add, to, we wanted can, to add to that. Can you just stay with a few minutes? I've got to take a little break here, but I want to ask you another question. I'm going to ask you to put your lawyer hat on. And sure. talk about the, this uh, episode that just happened in France, where the the man who was accused of um, uh, anti-Semitic activities and killed the, the the woman a few years ago, now is is basically going to be liberated because the judges have said that he was uh, under the influence of uh, cannabis when he carried out mm. this horrific murder. So I mm. just want to ask you a couple questions about that. Okay. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out what's I'm very uh, troubled by a story that emerged from France yesterday. Uh, where the highest court in France has ruled that a man who uh, killed Sarah Halimi, uh, a a Jewish lady, in 2017 in an anti-Semitic frenzy, uh, that he cannot stand trial because he was in a state of acute mental delirium brought on by his consumption of cannabis. Uh, This man admitted to killing, and right now he's in a psychiatric institution, and uh, he beat Sarah Halimi before throwing her out the window of her Paris apartment, uh, yelling Allahu Akbar, or that is God is great, and I killed the devil. And uh, the court has ruled that uh, he was under the influence of cannabis, and therefore he uh, will not stand trial for this uh, for this murder. Uh, I find this uh, really uh, unsupportable. So just by chance, we were uh, chatting with Jacques, who's a lawyer, about a much happier topic before, but uh, this has come up. So Jacques, what, I mean, what do you think? I, I, I don't know how much you know about the law in France. Yeah. Well, but, I, but... So, well, look, I, I, uh, I'll, I'll make an attempt to comment on it. And uh, I had not heard of this, this tragic uh, set of circumstances and, and how awful for the victim and her, her family. So uh, the tragic. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm not familiar also with the law in France, which is actually quite different from Canada in many ways, although many of the principles may be the same. Um, but, uh, and, and you say it's in the highest court, so it sounds like it's not uh, capable of appeal or, or review. Right. But right. circumstances like this yeah. obviously lead often for legislators to rethink the law and the case law as it develops to actually correct the wrongs that sometimes come from from a case in court and the law. 
Uh, there's a very well-known saying that I learned in my first week of law school, Duralex Sedlex, which is, the law is hard, but that is the law, uh, the law maxim. In this particular case, obviously tragic. In the context of criminal law, and I don't know enough about the criminal law in France, but I would say that when we look here in Canada, there are two elements that most generally requ are required for, uh, for um, a crime to have been committed, especially in the context of one where uh, it would be a, a homicide, a murder, uh, and it would basically require the two elements of actus reus and mens rea. It's the action that takes place, the physical act, and also forming the intent, the mental intent, specifically the intent to actually go ahead and to commit the, the crime. Uh, those are two strong elements to it. One would say in some jurisdictions, aggravating circumstances such that you may not have to go so far as to have the mental intent to do something because you have taken something into your system, uh, recklessly or otherwise, to actually um, allow your, yourself to be put in a position where you can't even uh, create the, the decision or have the mental intent because you are either so drunk or so drugged or whatever that there would be circumstances where it doesn't matter. And that instance is also where it could be regarded as manslaughter. But under the circumstances here, when you look at a situation like this, um, the fact that uh, this individual uh, who committed this horrible crime uh, was, so, uh, was so completely out of it could very well, and I'm just speculating here, could very well be as a result of the court recognizing that uh, he had not had an intention and there was something that, that had obviously taken his, his mind away from, you know, from, from uh, uh, acting in a way that yeah. he would have otherwise. The, the trouble um, that I have with it, well, several, of course, is one that I, uh, I don't think cannabis is, is uh, like morphine. It will not mm -hmm. put you into a state where, you know, mm -hmm. you're totally unaware of your, your surroundings and then make you do horrific things like this. I just don't think cannabis does, does that. No, no. It, it can, you know, alter your state of mind, but not to the mm -hmm. extent that it makes you commit murder. It, and the, it would be, the other thing yeah. is that it, it, uh, whatever the drug may be, it, uh, it doesn't generate a thought that was not there before. So mm -hmm. obviously this man had anti-Semitic tendencies. I mean, that, that's corroborated by the original trial when he said that he was troubled by Miss Halimi's mezuzah. And that, of course, is, mm -hmm. is the, the uh, sure, uh, this uh, little thing that uh, uh, Jews have on the door with a, a prayer inside. He, he was troubled by that, and that amplified his uh, outburst of hate. So this, out, this hate was there to start with. Maybe it was, you know, the action was catalyzed a little bit by the cannabis, but, but at mm -hmm. the root of it was this existing hatred for which he now cannot be tried yeah. anyway. It, it, it sounds terrible. It sounds most troubling. Um, I, I'd be interested in knowing what it was that the defense had put forward for them to have succeeded and to look at whether the, the courts of first instance would have found otherwise and why it went to, to the court as it did. Um, obviously very disconcerting. In our circumstances, when someone has committed uh, a crime like that, the chances of them going uh, into the public and being free is, is, um, is very rare. So it could very well be, and I, I guess I'm generalizing here, but could very well be that this person will then be 
uh, uh, stuck in a facility um, that will be removed from the public for a very, very long time. And perhaps yeah, I think that is the case. I mean, I jail. think he, I, I don't think he's going to be let on the street. I, I think he's no. in a, some psychiatric mm-hmm. care facility, but, but he's not going to be tried for the crime. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the issue. Anyway, I'm sure in the next yeah. few days, we'll hear a lot more about this and, and, you know, see what really is, is going on and yeah. what the defense had to say and how this came about. But it, no. I know to me, it's, you know, it's troubling. Uh, Dr. Joe, it's whenever I hear of a case like this, and in a sense, the law is is so often so incredibly inadequate, but it it really does demonstrate to me how much we have to learn as a society and our community, how every one of us has an obligation to to just work together, to, to try to, as I guess, going back to my mother again, build those bridges. Uh, yeah, so on, a much, on a much happier so note, on a much happier note, your mother did try to do that and, and wrote a large number of books, and, and you interacted with her to write this uh, little book. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very anxious to hear the tune uh, here, uh, and uh, it's going to be available, I guess, right? It, it will. will be, it will. We'll be able, able to, to, to hear it. So anyway, I, I, I think uh, I'll alert people to get out there and take a look at this book, Sleep My, My Baby, and especially now that uh, you've heard the story behind it. Thank you. All right, anyway, that's way, it. We are smack out of time. Go. I, I so can thanks. add the proceeds also go towards the foundation, in my mother's name, to continue her legacy and the work that she, that she did. So I'm Excellent. very proud of the fact we're continuing that. Thanks a lot for guesting. And that is it. We are smack out of time. But we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>